Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Nurses eat their young. We have all heard it, and many have experienced this firsthand at some point in their career. Nurses are known for being compassionate, caring, dedicated, and committed to their patients. These same nurses can also be cruel, uncaring, uncivil, and brutal to their colleagues. This poses a challenge to caregivers. How do we care, but also be resilient to negative behavior or a toxic environment? How can we defend ourselves against bullying or toxicity in our unit? the silence and bring awareness to bullying and incivility, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Beth Bullock. Professor Beth Bullock is the director of the Acute Care Pediatric Nurse Practitioner Program at Rush University. She is a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Executive Nurse Fellow who worked with fellow national project team to provide healthcare leaders resources to identify, intervene, and prevent incivility and bullying in their workplaces, a key first step to high-functioning teamwork. Let's get right into it. Hello, Professor Bullock. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're going to be talking about incivility and bullying in nursing. We all know that it occurs, and we all know that it does have an impact on healthcare. But what is the difference between incivility and bullying? Well, thank you, Jill, for having me and talking to your members. Um, and please call me Beth. You know, it's a really good question. Is there really a difference between incivility and bullying? Because it's a continuum where disrespectful behaviors are at the low end of the continuum and then actual bullying and even violence are at the highest end of the continuum. And when you think of what are some of the behaviors that are out there, some people have tried to just call it disrespect. And I would say, you know, call it for what it is. It is incivility. It is bullying. Trying to come up with a different term for it doesn't serve any purpose. And looking at some of the behaviors, um, just think on your own units. It can be some passive aggressive behavior, maybe some teasing that doesn't go over really well, gossiping, withholding business information. And that often happens in levels of administration. So for instance, the C-suite, and if you're not used to that term, that's the C's are the chief operating officer, the chief nurse executive, the chief nursing officer, the chief medical officer, the chief executive officer, the C-suite. You know, for them, there can be a lot of competition. So withholding business information might be a way to bully one of your competitors. And the units, it might be overruling a decision without really any rationale because I said so. Some people sabotage the team efforts to make themselves look better. Others demean others. It can be verbal intimidation. It can be physical intimidation. It can be things like eye rolling. But then, because I do lecture on this all over the country, I've heard of things such as nurses' cars getting keyed. So, it really, really is quite a spectrum, starting from just basic behaviors like verbal intimidation or eye rolling, all the way up to the physical uh, and more hostile behaviors. Yeah, and I think people view, you know, nurses are the most trusted profession, right? And, you know, we're known to be caring, compassionate, dedicated, um, selfless, 
but yet we have this behavior um, amongst our peers and, and in the profession. Um, and these same people that possess those traits to the patients and their families, you know, can often be cruel and uncaring and, and you know, uncivil to each other. And, you know, and that just makes a very toxic work environment um, and a culture that, you know, could ultimately affect patient care and, you know, the outcomes of our, of our babies. Well, you know, let's talk about that. How does it affect patient care? Because you might think this is just bullying between two people, which would be a dyad, but it's not. It's always a socio-ecological event. So it might start with two people, but it was only permitted because that unit, that service line, that hospital, uh, that department, uh, that particular population like pediatrics or nursing, somebody had to allow it to happen. It's never just between two people. So Carleen Kerfoot wrote a book on to permit is to promote. And I really want you to think about that because if you permit things, if you don't stop it, it could be everything from a dress code to how a person documents, somebody coming in five minutes late every day, whatever the topic is, if you permit it, then you're saying it's okay, which means you're promoting it. And so what happens then is if this permeates a whole unit or a service line again or a larger group, everyone thinks it's okay. Some people might think that's what you have to do to survive because I want to be liked. I want people to help me. There can be clicks on units. And so with a click, the mean girl click, mean boy click, the mean mixed group um, click, some people help others and they don't help the other person. And it can be from the top down or bottom up. I've heard stories of nursing assistants who pick and choose who they're going to help. Um, we certainly have heard from the top down, it can be an administrator, it can be a physician to the nurses. But I also hear how often it is the nursing, again, that most trusted profession. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We're really, really good at this, but um, we still have some work to be done. We can pick on the new nursing student. We can pick on the new hire. We can pick on the med student. We might boss around or bully the respiratory therapist. And then when we're looking at how this can impact care, I want you to think if you are wondering if you're being second-guessed all the time, so you're the new person on the unit, and your preceptor is just berating you for everything and wonders, tells you right to your face, I don't know why they hired you because you don't know anything. You're not doing anything right. You know, we don't do things the way you did them at your other hospital. You need to do things our way. That can really demoralize you to the point then that when you have something to report, do you report it? There's a subtle patient change. You think you're just going to get yelled at again? You don't want to get yelled at. Um, you just want the peace. You just want everything to go fine. And you just want to take care of your patient and go home. Then something might get lost that can impact a patient. If you're distracted because of what's going on in your unit. That can impact your patient because now your patient's not getting the best of you. But the other thing that we can do is we can bully our patients. And I sit here and think of some of the examples over my career where, because I have, I was a nurse practitioner for many, many, many years and in the hospital in the PICU. 
but I've also worked ER, been the director of an ER. Uh, I run the acute care pediatric nurse practitioner program at Rush. So I'm always working with my students and I'll hear comments about, well, they don't do what they were supposed to patients. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. I think we should fire. I know one colleague who literally has, she's in primary care, has fired patients from their practice because they don't do what she wants them to do. And if you really think about how we're supposed to be patient and family centric, that we're the consultants to their care, we're to help them optimize what they see as health and how it should look like for in their family, in their social determinants. Um, bullying a patient is what you're doing when you're, t- you're firing them or you're saying, you did everything wrong. You didn't test your blood sugar as often as you were supposed to test your blood sugar. Now, that isn't an example, obviously, for this particular group. But when we really think about the patients and families, we have a tendency to boss them around and judge them when they don't do things our way. So, exactly. You're right. I mean, I see it mm-hmm. all the time in the NICU. You know, we tell sometimes we fall victim to telling the parents when it's time that they can touch their baby or, okay, this is a good time for you to hold your baby mm-hmm. and not, you know, when maybe it might be the best time for the parent or the best, you know, so we tend to control things there and it is bullying. It is bullying. And we know why we do it because our, our shifts can be so out of control that having it micromanaged in our head down to the nanosecond might be how we get through our day, but that isn't how our families get through their day. So we can bully each other. We can bully our patients and the families. We can bully the visitors, but we also have to realize there's a vicarious impact from all of this too. And bystanders, whoever they are, they can be consultants, specialists from another unit or another service line. It can be anybody. It can be the environmental service people, the people who pass the trays, uh, the food trays, whoever it is, they're bystanders, but they're picking up on all that toxicity. And they're probably hoping that nobody's going to pick on them, that nobody's going to be disrespectful to them or bully them. So there's really three groups, you know, the bullier, and I'll say bullier, not just incivility, but the bullier, the perpetrator, the recipient of the behavior, and then the bystanders. And if we all had, you know, a few hours tonight to just really do a call-in show, we'd probably start off very quietly. You might not have a story to tell at first, but then they would start coming, especially if you heard other people's stories. And you wouldn't know which story to call in and tell because you'd probably have so many because we all do. And we have a tendency to push them down, move on from them, get that thick skin because it's kind of the culture that, again, nurses can eat their young, (laughs) you know, is what we've already said. Um, And the thick skin is just a colloquialism for what we do. But does that make it okay? You know, for some people, they're hearing this over and over and over again. They can actually leave the profession. There's even reports of some of our colleagues who've committed suicide over it. So it's not okay to treat people that way, ourselves, our patients and their families, or for anybody to watch us treat ourselves like that. It will have a direct impact either on us because people don't stay in the profession or for our patients and our families. 
oh, also might not tell us something because they're afraid to get yelled at. So now just think I myself went to my provider yesterday and it had to be this wide open, transparent conversation. <clears throat> everything I did right, <clears throat> excuse me, and everything I did not do right. Uh, but if you're not open and honest with each other, how is that provider supposed to help me manage my health? Exactly. And I, I think when you were saying how nurses tend to be timid to mention if maybe they made a mistake or they have a question is really apparent now, you know, as hospitals start to be more transparent with their um, quality metrics and, you know, these are our collapsy rates, this is our quality rates, our pressure ulcers, um, you know, unplanned extubations, you know, a lot of hospitals start out, you know, morning huddle talking about these are our quality metrics and this is where we stand. And, you know, the first time you hear that, oh, this, we had an ex unplanned extubation last night or we had a, a collapse, everybody's first, you know, thought is, oh, what nurse had that patient? Mm -hmm. Or who did that happen to? And, you know, we have to change that way of thinking because, you know, Let's think about why did that happen, not who did that happen to, but why mm -hmm. and what can we do to make that better? And I think people now tend to be terrified of being that person that that happened to. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, because they know that people are talking and people are judging you um, on, you know, your skills as a nurse, um, you know, and we're not focusing on what we need to be focusing on is is correcting that that problem. So I, I think that that creates a real kind of a culture of fear um, and, and the feeling that, you know, you're always being watched um, and people are, are really judging you. Well, and when you have a culture of respect or a culture of quality is a term you're hearing a lot now too, identifying a process that's broken. So let's say I can't do something fast enough by myself without help, but I have to do it by myself because there's nobody to help me. And so it's not going to be done the way it's supposed to be done in the policy. You know, that's a broken process. And you have to have a group of people in a culture of quality who are willing to speak up about that and say, I didn't do it right three times this week because there was nobody to help me. And so that level of transparency does take a lot of respect on a unit. You know, sometimes we can't even tell that there's incivility and bullying, we have to look at some of the subtle signs. And it might be, oh, there's a lot of turnover on a unit. Or it might be, there's been a lot of sick calls. Or people come in late, they try to sneak out and leave early, they have excuses. You might notice that some of your colleagues have more headaches or talk about how they haven't slept. You may notice when you go out um, pre-pandemic, that some of your colleagues are drinking more than usual or their weight is fluctuating more than usual. You know, so when we really think about it, there's probably some subtle signs that something is going on. Now, I'm not going to say it's always incivility and bullying by any means. Some of these things are compassion fatigue. And in today's world and with the population you all take care of, there's a great deal of compassion fatigue out there. And the symptoms are really the same. But if you see things like that going on, you know, just we need to hit our pause button and say, why are these things going on? What is the pulse of that unit 
or that service line again or wherever we are, what is going on that we're starting to see these things? Because it only really takes one person to bring attention to it and want to work on it. And it only takes one person to flip a fabulous unit that everybody wanted to work on. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to work there anymore. So one person can really change the dynamic for the good or the bad. All right. Here's the million-dollar question. How do we fight this kind of bullying and incivility culture that's on our units? Well, Jill, that's a really good question. Because remember I told you, what you permit, you promote. So somebody's permitting it. But why are they permitting it? I don't think there's just one answer. Uh, Could it be retribution? You know, at every level, the administrator, the person below um, them who reports to them, the people lateral to us, is there fear that someone might lose their job? I think that's a real fear. And that's more than even the retribution on myself. Like maybe I don't fear any repercussions for me, but I don't want anything bad to happen to somebody else too. I don't want them to lose their job. I just want them to stop. Whatever they're doing, I just want it to stop. I want to go to work happy and I want to go home and enjoy my time and um, think about what I accomplished and be excited to go back to work the next day. So I just want it to stop. So I think that retribution is huge. But then there's also often a lack of support because somebody permitted this. So that whole you permit, you know, you permit what you promote. And so we have to have an organization that's really supportive to make these changes. So as we were working on our fellowship and the Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship that I was part of, um, there were seven of us assigned to the incivility and bullying. We self-selected it because the foundation wanted us to work on something that sustained human capital, us, and improved the quality of care. And we really thought incivility and bullying hit both of these. So we created a toolkit. And if anyone's interested in going to it, it's stopbullyingtoolkit.org or .com. We purchased both. (laughs) You can go to either place. And really what we tried to do then is we used the moral compass, which really goes along with nursing because we follow our true north. We really are the most trusted. And we tried to think through what do people need to attack this, um, to nip it in the bud. There's all different phrases, that colloquialisms that you can use for it, but we need to change it. And so, like I said, we really looked at a moral compass and our compass points were truth wisdom, courage, and renewal. And the first thing you might have to do is what is the truth on your unit, your service line, um, your hospital, your department. Some of you work in academic medical centers where you're in a children's hospital within a larger hospital. Some of you are in community centers. You really work in so many different areas. Uh, But what is the actual truth? You know, let's get past just anecdotally what's happening. And what we have for you in our truth bucket then is, you know, we look at it as a culture of disrespect is a barrier to patient safety and quality care. So that's our truth. Um, We have some tools that you can use in this bucket for students, for faculty, providers uh, to complete. And then 
to evaluate how the incivility and bullying is in an area, and then to continue to serially use them. Because you really have to monitor this uh, on an ongoing basis. You can't just fix it and then done, because as I pointed out, one person comes and it changes, one person leaves and it changes. So we really want some kind of dashboard. And you all have things you're, and some of you are nurse managers who are going to be listening to this, you have metrics that you use. You know, you have your turnover rates, your intent to stay surveys, your average tenure. You obviously have incident reports or whatever other term for your variance that you use. You have call-in histories. Uh, you have evaluations where people are coming in late or calling in sick. So you really have a lot of information. But one of the things that you could do is survey the floats. Now, if you have a float pool, floats go from unit to unit to unit. They know exactly who's the best unit to go to. They know where they're respected. They know where they're going to get a lot of support and they love to go there. Um, and they know which units they really don't want to go to. So surveying every float, who floats, <laughs> um, you know, is it a float pool or is it just, you know, when it happens? Um, and somebody's turn is just up, you could use that as a metric too to really start to follow on an ongoing basis how things are going on a particular unit. And some of the things that you could ask, you know, was did they feel welcome on the unit? Did somebody offer them help? If they floated again, would they be happy to go to that unit? Did they get appreciated when they were there? Uh, people thank them and ask them, you know, I hope you'll come back. So, you know, there's ways to really get at it and see if this is going to be helpful or not. But you also want people to know what incivility and bullying is. You need to have policies that are out there. Uh, one of the things you'll always hear about is no tolerance policies. I have to admit, I am not a fan of no tolerance policies. I don't know how old each of you are but I will share my story. I just turned 65 a couple of months ago. And I am told by my mother that when I was like three, I was pushing down the other kids because I liked being, you know, the only person who could walk and get all the attention. So I would push them down. So that means I've had 62 years of experience being a bully. A bully. <laughs> yeah, not real cool, right? Um, now, because of my Robert Wood Johnson work, and actually, even before that, I really started working hard on not having these behaviors. But I still slip once in a while, too. And I am very attentive to it. So if you all sit there and really think about yourself and these behaviors, you're going to find that they're really embedded in you. Some of the things you say, some of the things you do. And if you think you're going to listen to just a podcast for a half hour and totally rewrite how you behave... Well, that would be cool. I would love to be that impactful, but of course I'm not. So you really have to have a gracious space for this. You know, it's going to be two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Now you still have to have a set of policies because what if it's two steps forward and five steps back and then another five steps back and another five steps, you know, that's where you have no tolerance policies. You do still have to be moving forward you have to have people who want to change, and you have to have a group with a gracious space who are willing to help you change. Because if everybody 
Sami is, you know, Beth is a bully. Don't help her when she needs help. Um, she's mean. Uh, you don't want her as your preceptor. I run a program. Maybe you don't want her as your program director. Don't go to rush. You know, if that's how people were, how would I ever change? I have to have people who are gracious around me who want me to change and want to help me and support me during that change. And that's what takes courage is to make that change. And it's also courageous for the other people to call the bully out and say, you know, your behavior, you know, you're, you're bullying that poor nurse or that student or that resident. Uh, you know, you, you have to have the courage to not just be the, you know, silent bystander that they say people are, but you have to speak up. And I think that takes a lot of courage as well to call those people out that are, are being a bully at that, at that moment. You know, Jill, you couldn't have said it better. Because Teddy Roosevelt said, knowing what's right doesn't mean much unless you do what's right. And so we actually have a mnemonic that you can download from the site called Bullying Exists, um, Be Aware and Care. And the BE is Bullying Exists. It's out there, period. Don't even argue about it. It's there. Acknowledge it. You know, this is in my organization. It's going to come and go. So I'm going to watch for it because I know one person can change my culture for the bad and one can change it for the good. So I'm going to monitor my culture. And when I see something like you just mentioned, Jill, I'm going to act on it. Now we're going to move into how do I act? (laughs) But, you know, and then once you're acting, you really have to reflect because you want to reflect on action from past experiences. What did I do before that worked? And, oh, gosh, you know, when I said that that way last time, oh, that did not work well at all. So reflect on your past actions. Reflect in action. So as you're doing it, be willing to hit your pause button. So, and I still do this now. I do it with my students. I do it with everybody. Uh, I'll say something, and it won't come out right. And I'm still finding that I use colloquialisms, idioms, whatever phrases you, you know, you want, jargon, that might mean something that I was totally unaware that it meant. But I've said it all my life, people around me say it, and then all of a sudden I say it, and somebody goes, Beth, do you really know what that means? And of course I don't. And then I find out, and it's like, whoa. So I hit my pause button. And like in this podcast, you can fast forward or you could rewind. Think of that in your real world too. So if I missay something, I can hit my pause button and I can even say that out loud. I'm sorry, let me hit my pause button. That did not come out respectful. I'd like to rewind. You know, it's going to be really tough to find somebody who won't forgive you, the double negative, who won't forgive you when you try to do the right thing. It's if I say something stupid and I just keep moving forward, like I'm oblivious to it and everybody around me just needs to deal with me because that's the way I am. That's not okay. But rewind so that reflection reflection in action is incredibly powerful and people will forgive you, Mm -hmm. even if you say something really stupid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's impactful. You're like, oh, they recognized it and they said it and that that goes a long way and I think that's just going to gain you so much more respect Mm -hmm. if you say you know I'm sorry that came out that way I didn't mean it you know I apologize 
Simple. You know, and you might even have meant it. <laughs> yeah. But saying that that was disrespectful. I I apologize. And you make for sure people hear you because remember there's bystanders. And bystanders are seeing your toxic behavior, but they're also seeing your role model behavior. And then you can reflect, you know, for action because maybe you did say something really stupid and it didn't come out right, but you tried and you realized I need to read, I need to not do it that way next time. So then now you've got a plan for the next time you have a conversation and you do need to empower people. Um, if you're the administrator, you have to empower the people under you. If you're an administrator, people above you need to be empowering you to deal with things. Um, and we have to care. So it's be aware and care because, of course, it really matters. Um, and the language we use, like I keep saying, saying something stupid because I really can, um, our language is powerful. And it's the language of disrespect or it's the language of collaboration. So when we... In the neonatal world, you don't really have frequent flyers, but we did in the ER, for instance. And, you know, as my world changed and my maturity level changed over the years, I recognized that if somebody came in at three in the morning with their four children and wanted something to eat and really had some nebulous complaints and went in front of the TV to watch TV, I remember in my less mature years, it's like, oh, yeah, they all come in in the middle of the night because they want to watch the Super Bowl or they want to watch this or they want to do that. And as I matured, the social determinants of health before they had that title really started to impact me. And I realized that this mother in the middle dark of night on very lonely, empty street corners took three buses to get to my hospital um, and the first thing she wanted was warmth, companionship, and food. What should that have told me about what was going on in her home? You know, was there violence in their home? Was there violence in the neighborhood? Was there no heat in the home? Was there no food in the home? So instead of judging them and calling them frequent flyers, I should have been looking at what really was going on. Uh, if I can make one change to, while you're watch, uh, listening to this podcast, I really want you to think about the terms compliant and non-compliant. They really need to leave our vocabularies. They are so judgmental, so disrespectful. If you are non-compliant with something, there's punishment to be had. There's a ticket. You could go to jail. Bad things happen to people who are non-compliant. Compliant then means you're following the rules the way I want you to follow them. And that's not appropriate for our patients and our families. They really... They might be adherent to something, but it's amazing how we judge them when they don't do things the way we want them to be done. And that is just not the way to have a patient and family centric. I want more than a paradigm, you know, just the way we actually practice. So if I could just ask you to get rid of all those, I've heard PETA for pain in the ass and, you know, there's, oh, what are some that you might see for? NICU. I only worked in the NICU for six months, decades ago. I, we do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about moms that are um, non-compliant diabetics. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they, we silently, maybe out loud, judge them because they weren't compliant. And now they have, you know, an LGA baby that's having, you know, hypoglycemia or whatever. 
but there's a lot of reasons why maybe why they aren't compliant that we're not thinking about. Um, and I and I think a lot of times we are selfish and think more of bullying as, you know, uh, amongst colleagues. But you really brought up a lot of excellent points and um, allowing us to reflect on the bullying that's occurring, you know, between the nurses uh, and the healthcare team and the parents and families and patients, too, um, because I never really looked at it like that mm-hmm. and never really labeled it, I guess, as bullying. But that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we are, and we do try to do better, um, and we need encouragement. And so our encouragement comes from our colleagues. So let's say your whole unit decides you're really going to work on something, and you're not going to use the term PETA anymore for pain in the ass for colleagues or families or, you know, don't take on too much at a time. I do recommend taking things off in chunks, but, you know, you might need some kind of reminder so Beth all of a sudden starts to say the word PETA <laughs> and you, maybe our agreement is that if you rub your nose or you pull on your ear or you tap your finger or some kind of physical mode, that should give me pause. And I should wonder right away, why is she tapping her finger? What was I just doing? Oh, I almost said PETA. So you can use code, physical things. You can use code words. So let's say I'd actually said the word PETA, then you might go, ouch, or wow. But code words or code gestures have to be chosen and agreed to by the group. Beth doesn't say what your code word's going to be. I do happen to like wow or ouch, but you might think of something else that's a little bit better. And I happen to like those two words because I could say them kind of jokingly like ouch or and maybe it was a little more egregious. And I could say, ouch. You know, so I kind of like that you can put some tone to some of these. Uh, but, you know, having an agreement, because then if Jill, I don't know, is kind of invoking her will over somebody else, like the way I do it has to be the way you do it. But maybe that student or the new orientee actually is doing it fine. Yeah, it's different, but it's fine. Um, And I want Jill to tone down a little bit, but not embarrass her in front of a new person. Having a a code word or a little gesture can be really helpful to bringing attention to things. Yeah, I know our our years ago, our unit was having issues with nurses rolling their eyes Mm -hmm. during uh, rounds. Um, So, you know, we all got talked to about it. Uh, I'm not saying that maybe some things didn't deserve an eye roll, but um, it's disrespectful and it's not what you should do um, in the profession. But, you know, we had to all kind of, we did sort of little gestures um, to, you know, let people know like, hey, you're rolling you your just eyes. eye rolled. Like, yeah, and it sometimes it happens. You just don't know you're doing it. And I think you know, with the pandemic, we're lucky we have a mask, so people can't see a lot of our facial expressions. But mm-hmm. um, you know, facial expressions are are a form of you know being disrespectful as well. So we did have to try to help tone and call people out um, quietly uh, during rounds when we did notice that somebody was rolling their eyes or, or, or making some kind of a, of a face. Um, we even joked around and saying like, maybe you just need to wear sunglasses during rounds. So <laughs> nobody sees your eyes, but you know, that's just like, like you're, you're right. Like, and that you need to call these, these people out and, and not embarrass them, but let them know, Hey, you know, you're doing this. Cause sometimes I don't, I don't necessarily know everybody knows or realizes, or have done that reflection to know that they are 
in fact acting a certain way. Do you know, and to learn how to have these conversations, these difficult conversations, because there had to be a difficult conversation to start this whole process to choose a code word or code behavior, like pulling on an earlobe. Um, we're not taught this in grade school or high school in most colleges. I started teaching it in my program. It's been seven years now where we actually do this like in the sim lab and we have this available for you for free. everything on our website is for free because it all started with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And as you know, their commitment to nursing is just absolutely unparalleled. Um, so take whatever you want off the website. Just say you got it from the website. But there's other groups out there, too, that teach how to hold difficult conversations. And it should happen in nursing school. And it should happen in orientation there in our hospitals. Because we have difficult conversations with patients, families, each others during evaluations. And it's a skill to be learned, just like everything else that you do in your day on the unit. And I think when I was the director of the ER um, at Children's many, many years ago, before I came to Rush and started this program, I said, if two people were having trouble, because of course, I wasn't thinking socio-ecologically, I was thinking it was between two people, a dyad. Well, did you go talk to them? Now I realize what a stupid, silly, worthless phrase that was because did they even know how to have those conversations with each other? And it would have been much better for me to work with one of the people, model the conversation, practice with them, and then have them go out and hold the conversations themselves. So this is something I think a lot of hospitals are working on, and there are programs in our hospitals to do it. And I, if there isn't at your hospital, I highly recommend starting that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously listening to this podcast will give you some great strategies and, you know, let you look into the toolkit and maybe you can start a revolution on your unit and try to tackle um, bullying and incivility and these kinds of behaviors. Do you know, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So the last strategy that we all need to do is build our resilience. And I don't think our hospitals were really good at supporting us with our resilience. Prior to the pandemic, there were pockets, again, there were different hospitals across the country that were just probably exceptional at it, and others that weren't focused on it. But caring for the patients at all levels of the hospital, the way we've had to this past year, hospitals are really putting a lot of resources now into supporting the staff, uh, not because of incivility and bullying, but because of everything else we're going through. But don't dismiss what all of this can do if the problem was incivility and bullying, because we do need to build our resilience. We do need to be able to talk to each other. We really do need to feel renewed periodically. And so it's really important for each of us to think, what is that, what is that thing that makes you feel refreshed? I remember there was one person at Children's when I worked there years ago who knit through every meeting. And I know that there were people who thought 
it was disrespectful. She wasn't listening. But, you know, years later, I recognized that centered her. She was probably listening better than anybody at those meetings because that active knitting was just what truly centered her and grounded her. And it was her way to renew while she was talking to us. And I don't recommend that everybody knits through every meeting. But I'm saying each one of us has something. Is it watching TV when you get home? Is it being with your kids? Is it running, taking walks, playing with your dog? Whatever it is, actually identify it so you can be intentional about putting it into your life. So Beth, you mentioned um, how we should just take a chunk and not try to do everything at once. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know, find a champion. And the champion can be the person who's the biggest bully but wants to change. Somebody like me, you know, over the years as I wanted to change. Or it could be somebody who's always modeled wonderful behavior. And really go to the website and look at some of the steps that we have there for you. You know, October is anti-bullying month. And wouldn't it be great to celebrate some of the successes that you've had? And so perhaps what you're looking for is the language of collaboration. And you identify a couple of words that you realize you should never say on your unit anymore. And believe me, you can't just even delete those right away. It takes practice. So maybe that's where you start. But I can promise you that if you're already committed to making small changes, bigger changes are going to follow. You know, you have the choice. Do you want to be insensitive and kind of malicious and inhibit partnership? Or do you want to be um, supportive of people and have empathy and understanding for each other as much as we have for our patients and our families? Well, thank you, Beth, so much for joining us today. I hope that we have found some champions in our listeners or maybe even people that um, took this time to reflect on, you know, their role as um, in incivility and bullying. Um, but thank you so much. Everybody check out that toolkit because it seems invaluable to bring change to your unit. But thanks again, Beth, for joining us. No, and thank you for having me. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.